Lord be with you. Good morning and welcome to this Sunday School class here at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio and I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres. Uh, to the fathers out there, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I don't know if any other fathers have had this experience. I woke up this morning and I swear to you that I had twice the amount of gray hair this morning as I did last night. And if that's what Father's Day means, I am so sorry to my dad for these past 40 years. But maybe you have a different experience on uh, Father's Day morning. Well, I'm delighted you all are joining us here for this nine-week Sunday School class that we're calling Great Figures of the Old Testament. This is week three of that nine-week study. And each week, we're, what we're doing in this series is that we're revisiting some of the stories of the most familiar and prominent figures in all of the Old Testament, focusing specifically on the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch. And uh, our goal each week is just to reacquaint ourselves with these stories. Who are these characters? What are they like? What did they do? What did they not do? What do these stories reveal to us about their character, about their faith? So just trying to reacquaint ourselves with these stories of prominent figures, but also to ask, what is their legacy? That is, how have other readers throughout history understood these characters? How have these characters begun to take on a life of their own beyond the stories? that we read about? How, does the, how do those lives that they take on, how are they different in some ways than the stories we encounter in the pages of scripture? These are the sorts of questions that we're raising in this series. Um, I should note that each week of this series stands on its own. So if you've missed week one or two, uh, perish the thought, I know, but if you've missed weeks one or two, you can, uh, that's okay in one level because this week's study on Abraham and Sarah will be completely independent. That is, you will not be behind or penalized there will be no uh, late grade uh, deduction because of that. Um, but if you do wish to catch up on the past week's study, go to our website or follow us on, through iTunes on our stream. And you can actually hear these lectures. Uh, they're preserved online. So if you've missed it or just want to repeat the sound of my voice continuously throughout your week, please access those files. Uh, in week one, we turn to the story, of course, of Adam and Eve, what I call the first couple of the Bible. And we talked about their creation, we talked about their temptation, we talked about their eventual fall and expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Then in week two, we looked at the next generation of figures in the Old Testament. We looked at Cain and Abel, who were the offspring, the first two offspring of Adam and Eve, all the way through the sons of Noah. And what we noted last week is that many of the themes that we encountered with Adam and Eve, that is, these tensions between faithfulness and fall, promise and doubt, those sorts of tensions that we encountered in the garden very much go with the next generation of people outside of the garden. So the location changes, but the characteristics of life with God don't. And so we saw those stories uh, the past two weeks, and today we'll turn to Abraham and Sarah. Their story is part of a larger section of Genesis, particularly chapters 12 through 23. There won't be a quiz on that. There will be a quiz, but not on that. Their story is found in Genesis 12 through 23, and that stuff, those chapters, are a part of a larger block of scripture, namely Genesis 12 through 50, that scholars often call the patriarchal narratives. Now, in some ways, that's a very apt title for Genesis 12 through 50, because in those chapters, we encounter the stories of the great fathers of faith, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But in many other regards, patriarchal narratives is not a good title for those chapters, precisely because there are also uh, uh, influential women of faith 
in those chapters as well. Of course, we have Sarah and Rebecca, Leah and Rachel. And these are not mere supporting actresses in a broader drama about men. Rather, these women are primary agents working behind the scenes and sometimes in the direct spotlight to orchestrate crucial events that bring about God's purposes in the world. So I prefer a, a term such as ancestral narratives um, as opposed to patriarchal to understand the fact that women play a crucial role in all of these chapters. In either case, our focus this morning will be particularly on Abraham and Sarah. And one of the questions I want to raise, kind of our focal point, will be uh, th these figures, Abraham and Sarah, are often regarded as great heroes of faith. And I'll say more about why and where we encounter that. But I want to ask this morning if that's the whole of their story. Do these figures perhaps have more texture? Are they more complicated? Are they maybe even a tiny bit less faithful than we often assume? And if so, why does that matter? What does it matter for our faith? They're the sorts of questions that we'll raise this morning. Uh, and before we do so, let me pray. And let me also um, officially, or maybe for the second time this morning, welcome our guests here from Kenya. We're grateful to have you, and we're glad you're joining us for this Sunday School Hour. Um, don't ask me too difficult questions. Only ask me easy questions that I can answer uh, throughout this class. So but, but we are very, very pleased to have you here. We're honored by your presence. All right, let us pray. God of mercy and grace, God of the past and present, God of the great ancestors of our faith, we pray that you illumine these texts for us this morning, that they might be fresh stories about familiar figures, that we might learn new things and gain insight, not only into these lives of Abraham and Sarah, but also to our own lives and our own faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us in previous weeks, you know that we begin each lesson with a quiz. Now, by this point, this is no surprise. You know what to expect. I, I, I anticipate that many of you study Saturday night. You block off Saturday night. You cancel your plans. You study so that you can show off to your friends uh, during this quiz. Uh, this is a pointless quiz, meaning that there is a point to the quiz, but there aren't points and that I'm not giving points for this assignment. Um, but I thought we need to have a different tone for Father's Day. And I thought, well, maybe I'll cancel the quiz for Father's Day. Take some of the pressure off the dads. But I said, no, no, no. The fathers need to be tested. Uh, this is actually an important theme in Abraham's life. life. But we need a special focus. And so today's quiz is going to be family feud style. Now, if you grew up or watched TV in the, what, 70s or 80s, maybe into the 90s, you know family feud and how it works. Uh, there's a host. There are two families competing against one, one another. Uh, for our purposes this morning, this is one family. And this is the other family, so there will be a competition. Um, and the host of the show, of course, at least as I remember, is Richard Dawson. And so I guess this morning that makes me Richard Dawson. Um, now it's Steve Harvey, that's right. It's continued to, to, uh, to live on, although with, uh, with different hosts. Um, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to play Family Feud, three questions, competition between this side and that side. Let's see how it goes. So here's the first question. We polled 100 people and asked, in Genesis 12, God promises to bless Abraham by giving him which of these things? And there could be more than one answer. Which of these things is Abraham blessed with in Genesis 1 as a promise? A great name, a great nation, a great number of kids, and a great car. Which of these four things, and there could be more than one, is Abraham promised with? So is he promised with a great name? Yes. 
Is he promised with a great nation? Yes. Is he promised with a great number of kids? Yes. Sort of. He's actually not promised that in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, he's promised that. However, the promise that he would be a great nation implies that he would have a lot of kids. So I'm going to give credit for that. Is he promised with a great car? No. No, not that one. Although it's a shame, one might wonder what sort of car he would be promised uh, had he been given the chance. Okay, that's the first one. That's our easy one. Our second of three. In our fa- oh, oh is this, could this be it? No, still nothing on the, on the clicker. Okay. Thanks, Tim. All right, question two. In Genesis, uh, okay, we polled 100 people and asked, Abraham was born and raised where? Abraham was born and raised where? Here are your options. Hebron, Haran, Upper Mesopotamia, Lower Ainsley Park. Which of these four? So was Abraham born and raised in Hebron? No. Was Abraham born and raised in Haran? Yes. And I'll say more about that in a second. Was Abraham born and raised in Upper upper Mesopotamia? Yes, because that's where Haran is. And was Abraham born and raised in Lower Ainsley Park? And friends, that's just a neighborhood right across the street where our head of staff lives. Uh, No, he was not born. And where is Lower Ainsley Park? For me, that's the seedy end. That's that's this end. There's not a seedy end to Ainsley Park. That's this end of Ainsley Park. Uh, in any case, now, now I mentioned this. Oh, are we there? Tim, you are the best. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're up and running. Look at this. Look at how this works. Tim, thank you. Look at that. You know how much time it takes? I don't actually spend any time on preparing the content. I just spend my time doing stuff like this. Um, okay, so uh, this is an incredibly important point because Haran, Upper Mesopotamia, it's not in the land of Canaan. This is an incredible important point to remember that Abraham, the father of the Jews, the progenitor of all of Israel, is a stranger, is a foreigner. In fact, the word that the Old Testament uses for Abraham in Hebrew is ger, and that's the word that gets translated as uh, resident alien or stranger. Friends, let me just put put a, a fine point on this. Abraham is a refugee. The father of Israel is a refugee. He lives in a land that he was not born in. We'll come back to why this is important in a second, but just keep, keep that in mind. Finally, our third quiz, and here we get the full benefit of the board. Uh, in Genesis 17, Abraham is rendered, Ab- uh, excuse me, Abram. His original name was Abram. I'm going to keep saying Abraham in this lesson. But originally, Abraham was called Abram, and then he becomes renamed Abraham, and the name Abraham means, the name Abraham means, number one, exalted father. Number two, world's number one dad. He had a coffee mug made with that on it. Number three, father of the Jews. And number four, father of a multitude. So which of these does Abraham's name really mean? I'm getting some fours. I'm getting some ones. This is a bit of a trick question. Uh, You know I like to do trick questions. Number one, exalted father, is actually what Abram means. Abram means exalted father. My uh, common... uh, 21st century translation of exalted father is world's number one dad. So I would have taken that as an answer as well. Um, Abraham is widely regarded as the father of the Jews, but that's not what his name means. Uh, His name literally means father of a multitude too. That is, he's going to be a father of many, many, many descendants. But now I want to add just a side note on this. There's a very interesting play here on this term uh, in the New Testament. 
In Matthew 3, 9, we get this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus speaks back to the Pharisees and he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Now, of course, as Jews, they did have Abraham as their ancestor. The context here is that they would have been claiming Abraham's ancestry as a way to validate themselves, as a way to validate their faith. And, and Jesus is, and that, that was party line. That was commonly accepted. And Jesus says, nah, wait a second. Be careful. Don't claim that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, pointing to stones around him, to raise up children to Abraham. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying ancestry, biological descent. That biological tie back to Abraham is not the decisive factor when it comes to a right relationship with God. Jesus doesn't say it's unimportant. Jesus doesn't dismiss the Jews because they are connected to Abraham, but he says that's not the only point. And in doing so, uh, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic. The words come to us in Greek. But in doing so, Jesus has this wonderful play on words. For the word for stones, abanim, sounds a lot like the word for sons, banim. So Jesus says, uh, in a sense, Jesus says, so from these abanim, God is able to raise up banim. God is able to raise up through faith sons who are unrelated biologically to Abraham. A very important theology in the New Testament. So I'll let you grade yourselves as we always do uh, on our family feud quiz. Uh, we'll return to quizzes next week, but I now want to move on to some of the content of the course, course, class, study. Um, and that is I want to begin in the beginning with the calling of Abraham. This is a very well-known uh, text here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, the story, I should say, kind of begins midstream. We don't get a lot of backstory on Abraham and Sarah. We don't know a lot about their younger lives or their occupations or different things. The story kind of starts with Abraham and Sarah, a little bit older. Abraham's 75, Sarah's 66. And the story starts with God breaking in to the events and offering a promise. And the promise goes like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, remember his name is still Abram here, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he's, he's sending men off to be a refuge, refugee. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What stands out to you in the nature of this blessing? Again, there's very little backstory here. But what just words or ideas stand out to you? in this blessing, this promise that God gives to Abraham. Go. 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 So there's an imperative. Go. We'll come back to that. Bless. Bless. In fact, bless or blessing is repeated five times here uh, in this text. Any, what else? What is it? Great nation, right? So there's a promise of, it's not just a blessing on Abraham, but it's a blessing on what will come from Abraham, what, what will come forth from his descendants. Very good. God's agency. God's God saying, I will, I will, I yeah. will. Right. It's, there's not a lot of you will here. There's one thing, there's the imperative, and we'll come back to that, go. But the rest is, this is what God's doing. This is a promise. This isn't a list of do's and don'ts. This isn't a, here's how you should live. This is, go, and then I will. I will do all of these things, right? I want to highlight three points in this blessing that I think often go overlooked, but I think are important to its theology. First, this is a promise in the midst of hopelessness. If God comes to you and says, you're going to be the father of a great nation, and you're going to have many descendants, that to me would be not only implausible, 
but probably not great news since we're probably kind of a one-kid sort of family uh, unit right now. So I would be troubled by a lot of descendants for a number of practical reasons, but it still would be implausible. implausible. I'm 40. I don't have that much more time to have many, many descendants. But, and that would have been incredible for Abraham too, but the promise is even more remarkable in, in this context. Why? Because in, in some of the very last verses of the preceding chapter, we learn this. Now, Sarai, that was Sarah's name before her name changed. I want to call her Sarah. Sarah was barren. She had no child. Now, remember, so Sarah and Abraham are barren. They're infertile, and they're really old. So they're 75 and 66. These are not childbearing ages, right? So it would be remarkable for me to be promised many descendants. I'm 40. But to be 75 and infertile and then promised a lot of descendants, this is crazy. This is unbelievable. Here, a promise is breaking into a hopeless situation. Abraham and Sarah were not expecting to have kids, and for all intents and purposes, it would have seemed downright unbelievable that God could do this. And we're going to see actually how that gets played out, because at certain moments, Abraham and Sarah both actually think, this is unbelievable. This can't happen. In fact, that, that, that idea sets a lot of the drama. So it's a promise in the midst of hopelessness. Second, this is a blessing with a purpose. This is a blessing with a purpose. That, uh, it's on the next page. Uh, the key to this narrative is the so that clause that's right here. See right before the yellow line? Um, so that this is the key to the whole blessing. It's not just I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. Things will be great for you. You'll have a lot of money. You'll have a lot of cattle. Da, 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 da. It's I will bless you so that. There's a purpose to the blessing, and that purpose isn't just for Abraham to be great and have a great reputation. The, the purpose is for Abraham to do something, namely to be a blessing to others. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to the others. The blessing is not the end. It's the means to an end. And here in this text, that, that end is blessing others. You will be a blessing, and you and all the... Uh, you, uh, wait, sorry, took the line. You'll be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a very, very important point. Uh, it's not just fame or prosperity, uh, but it's a calling that Abraham has. Uh, in fact, I would say that there's a, there's a tension here in this, this passage between the particularity of the calling, that is, God chooses a particular person, a particular family, right, that there's an exclusiveness to that, there's a particularity to it, but there's a universality of the, of the mission. So there's a particular person that's called but there's a universal or global mission. All the families, all the ends of the earth will be blessed by you. So it starts uh, in a particular way, but it rapidly expands, expands to a global or universal mission. That's the second thing that's often overlooked. The third is this. The calling, and this, some of you have anticipated this in your answers, the calling does not have a lot of prerequisites. Okay? Abraham doesn't, or excuse me, God does not say, uh, go from your country and your father's house, enroll in seminary, get a master's degree, apprentice at a church, get ordained, and then I will bless you and make you a great nation. A lot of that stuff is left out of it. I'm a big fan of people going to seminary and getting a uh, master's education and so on and so forth. I've done, I've done that myself as of many in this room, or at least some in this room. But that's not what God says. God says one imperative, go. It's remarkably open-ended. God does not go on to explain exactly where to go or how to go or what to bring with you or what to do next. God doesn't give a blueprint of this mission. God gives one imperative, 
go. And so it's especially remarkable that in verse 4, right after this, we find out, so Abraham went. He didn't ask for the blueprint. He didn't get all the details of the journey. He just went. And in Hebrew, the word translated here, uh, went, is the same word that we have way back up here as go. God says go, Abraham goes. This is the remarkable part of his faith in many, many ways, is that he, without a blueprint, in this open-endedness of calling, Abraham goes. And I feel like this, this is one of those points that th there are parts of this story with Abraham and Sarah that, that seem um, ancient to me and not so relevant to my life, uh, like the idea of having many descendants and many kids. Uh, but this one seems remarkably relevant. And this, to me, at least in my own experience, is quite, is a good description of the nature of God's calling. Uh, it's go. It's that. It's open-ended. I often wait, because I'm kind of an organized sort of person, so I want to know, well, what's next, and what's next, and what's after that, and what do I do then, and tell me this, and I want to know, what if I do this, if I go there? I want it all laid out, but that's not typically how God works. Maybe that is how God, you've experienced God at times, but that's not how I experience God, at least in my life. This is more of my experience. It's the go. And the faithfulness is going. And not just going, but the faithfulness is trusting that you're going to figure out God's going to help you figure out where to go. But the key point is that you go. The key point is the beginning. Um, so it's remarkably open-ended, and yet this story opens up uh, into incredible things for Abraham and his family. I want to add one last point. Um, in this verse here, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. The, the focus is very much on Abraham. He goes. He went. God addresses him. But he doesn't go alone, does he? The very next verse, verse 5 he takes along Sarah and his nephew Lot and his whole family. And so I would argue that this is not best described as the calling of Abraham. Oops, I went too far. Uh, this is not just the calling of Abraham. Sorry, that was pointless, those clicks. Um, uh, it's not just the calling of Abraham, but it's the calling of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah goes too. Sarah has agency and purpose in this as well. Sarah doesn't just go along as kind of uh, as baggage on this journey. Sarah goes with Abraham as a partner. And as we'll see, Sarah plays a crucial role in actually figuring out what it means to go in response to God's call. So that's that. That's, uh, now I want to move on to actually, since we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, I want to talk about uh, the nature of their relationship as a couple. Here again, the story is rather sparse in the details. When did they meet? Uh, where was their first date? Did they have a unity candle at their wedding? There's a lot we don't know from these uh, uh, passages in Genesis. But we do know a few things. Um, twice we are told that Sarah is beautiful. In Genesis 12, 11, and 12, 14. I'll say more about that in a second. Of, of Abraham's appearance, we are told nothing. Now, again, I have to say uh, that we do know he's 75. And with all due respect to the septuagenarians in the room, he was not a strapping young man at this point. Um, uh, this is an image from a not-so-popular and a not-so-critically-acclaimed German miniseries on Abraham and Sarah. Um, uh, you can tell that they, they look a little bit older, especially Abraham. Curiously, nowhere in Genesis do we find out that Abraham loved Sarah or that Sarah loved Abraham. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't love each other. It's just that the text never goes out, goes out of its way to say Abraham loved Sarah or Sarah loved Abraham. This is an, it's an interesting omission in part because the text does go out of its way to say that Abraham loved Isaac and Sarah loved Isaac. So there's a lot of description of how Abraham and Sarah felt towards their kids, 
but not about how they felt towards one another. And I think this just, says, just, just proves that in the, for, the, for the author of Genesis, Abraham were, and Sarah were crucial as parents, more, more so than they were crucial as a married couple. Uh, that is, the focus of the story is not on their marriage. The focus of the story is on them as parents and thus their descendants. Um, there are some odd dynamics, I have to say, in the relationship between Abraham and Sarah. Odd things go on, and in fact, uh, it happens in two different episodes, both of which echo similar scenes, and I want to just briefly re reacquaint you with those scenes. Uh, the first thing we learn about Abraham and Sarah after this blessing scene is that they go on a journey. They go to Egypt because there's a famine, so they go down to Egypt for food. Why do you go to Egypt for food? Because remember, this is something that Joseph will do uh, just a couple chapters later as well. He'll go to, to Egypt for food um, in Genesis 37. Why do you go to Egypt in a time of a famine? The not, this is what a wonderfully astute crowd. That's right. The Nile overflows year in and year out, assuring that there's this rich uh, uh, silt that's, that's laid over the farming territory. So even in drought, Egypt tends, at least not, at least not the, the, kind of the, um, the northern part of Egypt, it doesn't typically, uh, its, its crop production is not as affected as other parts of the world. So it's common. What do you do in drought? You go to Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and, uh, but Abraham has a worry. Abraham thinks, well, gosh, well, what if Pharaoh sees Sarah, notices how beautiful she is, and wants to take Sarah as, as his wife? Well, what would happen in the ancient world is that Pharaoh would kill or mistreat Abraham so as to get Sarah as his wife. So what is, uh, this is terrible marriage advice. What does uh, Abraham tell Sarah to say? Say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me. The worst thing, do not, if you are married or have any intentions of being married, never, ever, ever do this sort of arrangement with your spouse, okay? Um, I get in trouble sometimes if I don't wear my wedding ring to the gym because I don't want to scuff it up on the weights. I mean, but this is way worse than, than that, okay? So pretend that you're my sister. So Sarah does it, and Abra uh, Pharaoh sees Sarah and says, oh, how beautiful, and Abraham's like, well, she's my sister, take her. So uh, Pharaoh takes her into his house, okay? Um, I forget what text I have here. Oh, there was the famine text. She take, uh, there, I'm, I'm several cl clicks behind. Say you are my sister, so it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared on your account. So that happens. Pharaoh takes her into her house. Um, we can presume, we don't know what happens in the house, but we presume that, that, that she becomes a type of wife to Pharaoh or at least is part of her, uh, his harem uh, now, that, now that she lives there. But then God afflicts Pharaoh with many plagues, kind of anticipating, I think, the Exodus story where Pharaoh gets inflicted with, uh, with plagues. But God inflicts uh, Pharaoh with plagues, and somehow Pharaoh figures out that this new woman is not, in fact, Abraham's sister, but is, in fact, his wife. So somehow, we don't know how it happens, but Abraham figures it out. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? so that I took her for my own wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and be gone. Pharaoh's just trying to wash his hands of it, right? Uh, he's, he's trying to say, look, I, I didn't know. I wouldn't have done this if I'd known that this was your, your wife. Get out of here. Why, why did you trick me this way? Okay, and so Abraham goes. Now, it's a disturbing story, I think, in many ways. What's Abraham doing here, lying about his wife and trying just to protect his own hide? Well, it, it, would, be all, it would be very uh, disturbing, but even more so it's disturbing because he does the same thing eight chapters later. 
in Genesis 20, oh, sorry, uh, but this, I forgot the punchline. This, uh, this is a bizarre story that is very uh, fitting for a reality TV show here in the States. So I, I consider it, it's, uh, it's the wife swap ancient Israel version uh, of the story, right? It's just this weird encounter. It's, it's, as I said, it's made all the more weird because it happens again in Genesis 20. Same thing happens. This time they don't go to Pharaoh in Egypt. They go to Gerar and they encounter this guy named King Abimelech. But the same thing happens. Uh, Abraham has the same fear. He says to Sarah, hey, say again. He doesn't say again, but he should have. Say again that you're my sister so that I'll, it'll go well with me. And the king of Gerar takes her in and so on and so forth. But there's one important detail that's different in this story. Um, instead of inflicting the king with plagues, God actually visits the king in a dream and says, and this is before like, uh, Abraham, or excuse me, that the king and Sarah are actually united uh, and says, don't do this. Like, God actually tells the king that, that, that this, this woman, she's actually the wife of that guy. I know, I know what happened, but, but, but don't do this. It would be wrong to do this. So God kind of intervenes to protect Sarah this time. And um, the, the, king, uh, the king comes back. Um, that's God's intervention. And the king comes back to Abraham and says, what were you thinking of that you did this thing? Like, why did, why did you say this to me? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, once again, whose interest is Abraham concerned with? His own. His own. And what's ironic here in this text is that Abraham thinks no one fears God in this place, so I'm in danger. But what actually happens? King Abimelech fears God and gives Sarah back. So it's, it, ironically, it's Abraham who doesn't fear God or trust God enough uh, to get through these circumstances. But it's the, this foreign king who does. Now, my question for you is, what do you make of this? What do you make of Abraham's character in this story? It's a little bit seedy. I'm not sure that this is the model, at least of, of I, don't, I don't think it'll be the theme of the next couple's retreat. I don't think, although I'll consult with Katie on that. Um, it's, it's hard to make sense of it. I think in the most charitable light, you might see Abraham as what literary theorists call a trickster. That is someone who shrewdly negotiates a difficult circumstance to work things out, right? So Abraham was in danger, and yes, he had to lie, but he, he was trying to negotiate the safety of his family. This would be the most charitable reading. Cassandra doesn't buy it for a second. Uh, this would be the most charitable reading that this is what's happening. And maybe it in somewhat anticipates the theme of the shrewd leader in a foreign land. It, it maybe we find in it echoes of Esther or Daniel, who have to kind of manipulate circumstances in foreign countries to, to negotiate survival, perhaps. But also it just seems like Abraham is flawed. Abraham is a flawed husband. Abraham, despite being celebrated as this great man of faith, is more like me and you than he is this perfect model of, of faithfulness all the time. There are problems with Abraham uh, in this story. And I think uh, that that's not lost on the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, who names Abraham in this hall of faith. I think he thinks of Abraham as a faithful figure in spite of his failings. And maybe that's a lesson to us that to be a, a person of faith doesn't mean that actually, it should mean that we don't tell our wives to say that they're our sisters, but it doesn't mean that we are perfect or without flaw. So with that, um, I want to I say a little bit more about the faith of Abraham because this is a very important point in the New Testament. You know this line from Hebrews 11:8: by faith Abraham obeyed 
when he was called to set out for a place that, was to re- uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's the go part. And he set out not knowing where he was going. Indeed, that is a mark of great faith, and the book of Hebrews celebrates him extensively for that. And this is not without good reason. In Genesis 15, 6, we learn that Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord, this should be a familiar line to many of you, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, the apostle Paul clings to this verse, Genesis 15, 6. Paul was a great reader of the Old Testament. He saw this verse and comments on it in both Galatians 3 and Romans 4. And and what he does, he said, look, this thing that Abraham did, he believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That for Paul becomes the model of faith by grace through faith. Justification by grace through faith. Paul connects that theology to the story of Abraham. He says, look, Abraham believed and God made him righteous before he didn't have to do any works. He didn't have to, to, to worship relics or, or, or pay money. He was justified in God's sight because of, what, uh, because of his faith. And in fact, th- this, uh, this very idea uh, becomes central to Luther and to Calvin in their Reformation theologies of justification uh, by grace through faith alone. And all of that's well and good, but I want to ask, what's the context? What's the context of Genesis 15:6? The story there is a little more complicated and adds a little more texture than is often admitted. Here's how it is. Genesis 15, 1 to 6. And Abraham said, um, oh, sorry, but right prior to this, God has once again promised that, uh, that, that he would be a protection, a source of protection to Abraham. Uh, but then Abraham said this, you have given me no offspring. I am 75. You've given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. Abraham assumes that it will be impossible for him to have a kid. So this promise that God has given him to be a father of a great nation will have to work by some other means. It will have to work by means of an adopted uh, heir and a slave that's adopted as an heir. So Abraham, foregone conclusion for Abraham, that he is not going to have kids. So this is an expression of doubt for Abraham. It might even be an accusation against God. I might even go that far because Abraham says, you have given me no offspring. Not Sarah or I haven't produced offspring, but it's you, God. You're the one who promised and you haven't delivered. Okay? Now what follows this is that God doesn't change the circumstances. Abraham doesn't have a child on the spot, but God shows Abraham a sign. He says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And it's after that sign that Abraham says, or, or that Abraham believed and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. I still think that this is an amazing story of faith because it's a story about how Abraham, in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of a human impossibility, still believed God. But friends, take note, that faith comes only after doubt. Abraham doesn't just magically arrive at this faith never having any problems, any concerns, any doubts, any despair. Abraham gets to faith, but only after going through doubt. Here again, I think it's an important point. We need to remember that. When, when Paul says justification by grace through faith, and that's echoed in Luther and Calvin, and it's rooted in the story of Abraham, it's not rooted in a perfect man with a perfect faith, but a man who had doubt and then believed. And I think that more closely models what I think what God expects of us, rather than somehow this perfect faith that never uh, has doubt, that somehow is immune to any disbelief. It's a, it's a more realistic portrait, I think, of what faith 
is about. Now, as is the practice, I have prepared a three-hour Sunday school lecture. Um, somehow, I think that this lasts longer than it does. So I'm going to have to skip some wonderful little stories here, um, including two passages where Abraham and Sarah laughed. Do you guys remember these passages? There, there are two other occasions where God says, look, you're going to have a lot of kids. And Abraham's like, I'm 100. How am I going to have a lot of kids? And there are these great stories where, where like literally Abraham falls on his face and laughs at the promise. Another sign of doubt, by the way. This incredible story. It's a great little example because there's this wonderful little literary play. In Hebrew, the word for laughed, Yitzhak. Does that sound like anything to you? Yitzhak? Who's Abraham's son? And in Hebrew, you know what? They're spelled exactly the same way. Isaac means he laughed. So in English, you just read Abraham laughed. Then later, he has a kid, Isaac. But in Hebrew, you read Abraham Yitzhaked. And later, he had Yitzhak. So there's this wonderful play that in spite of Abraham's laughter, his laughter of incredulity, his laughter of disbelief, he has that son and that son is named, in a way, reflects this lineage of Abraham's uh, doubtful laugh. Now, if you think Sarah is any, any better, she actually does the same exact thing. In Genesis 18, there's another encounter uh, with strangers who visit uh, Sarah in Abraham's tent. And one of them says, um, you know, you're gonna have a, you're gonna, next time I come back to the tent, you're going to have a son. And Sarah also, like Abraham, laughs. Um, it's, it's almost the same exact story. So Sarah laughed, titzak, it's a different verb because she's a woman speaking, uh, and there's, uh, Hebrew verbs are gendered. Um, after I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, what's so funny about this story, I'll just say this briefly, is that Abra uh, Sarah laughs because she's listening in on a conversation that Abraham is having with these three men who come and visit his tent. So she's kind of like overhearing one of the guests saying to Abraham, you know, your wife's going to have a son by the next time we visit. And then uh, Sarah laughs out loud. But the irony is, as she's listening in to their conversation, God is listening in on Sarah's laughter, right? And what does God say? This, is, to me, is just a hilarious part of Scripture. The Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, so shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, oh, yes, you did laugh. Like, I can imagine, like, uh, like two middle schoolers being like, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yaha, nah-ah. Yaha, yes, you did. I mean, it's, it's this funny little narrative, because, of course, God knows that Sarah laughs. So it's not just that she laughs, but there's this denial of disbelief. Right? It's, it's, this, it's this theme that we saw again and again in the earlier chapters of Genesis. It's not just the fall that was bad, the eating of the fruit. It was that both Adam and Eve deny it and place the blame on someone else. We see a similar pattern here. Right? Abel does, or excuse me, Cain does something very similar too. He denies it and tries to shift blame. Well, Sarah says, I didn't laugh. I mean, I wonder what, how the story would have gone if, if, if Sarah just fessed up. It's like, yeah, I laughed. This is unbelievable. This is hard to believe. I believe, I believe in God, but this promise of God is hard to believe. That's the sort of place that I think many of us find ourselves in. Uh, and, and again, we see these themes echoed uh, in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Um, tragically, oh, so let me actually end on this. I'm not going to get to, um, well, I think what I might do is, uh, because we're not going to, of course, get to the story of Genesis 22, 
the binding of Isaac, which is kind of the culminating piece of the Abraham and Sarah story where Abraham has to sacrifice, or was called to sacrifice his son. What I think I might do, uh, if you, uh, I might start next week there, because it's such an important story, and although it's not properly part of the Hagar and Ishmael story, those two stories, Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah and Abraham, are very much intertwined. So I think I'll do that. I think I'll start with this next slide next week. That's my inducement to come back, even though I say that these weeks are independent. Uh, it, it's my teaser uh, to come back. I intentionally left it out. But I want to draw one last, um, one last point uh, of theological connection uh, in light of this, this Sarah story. Um, I find uh, an interesting connection between Sarah's laughter of disbelief when an angel of the Lord announces, because those visitors turned out to be angels, by the way, who come to see Abraham and Sarah. I find a, an interesting connection between Sarah's laughter of disbelief and uh, what happens when uh, an angel visits. And you guys should please feel free to go, too, because I'm about to run over. You remember that story from the Gospel of Luke where an angel, the angel Gabriel, comes to Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. Um, Mary, it seems to me, is in a position equally implausible as Sarah. Sarah is going on 66 and is barren. Mary is young and has never slept with a man. And both women are promised that they will bear a child. Both situations to me seem equally implausible, equally hopeless, equally uh, difficult to believe. But how Mary responds seems quite different than how Sarah responds. Because remember how the story goes? Mary said, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Mary's response of faith seems remarkably different than Sarah's laughter of disbelief. This doesn't mean, of course, that God can't work through Sarah, for of course God does, and Sarah comes around, just like Abraham comes around in many ways. But the initial response to the announcement in a hopeless situation that you will have a child seem remarkably different. And I can't help but think uh, the gospel writers very often draw on the story of Genesis and very often recall the story of Abraham. I can't help but think that the, as Luke crafted this story of the Annunciation to Mary of the virgin birth, that he didn't have in mind an earlier Annunciation scene and was hoping to show that Mary was kind of a redeemed or a restored Sarah someone who was also promised a child in an improbable situation. But in this case, the mother responds quite differently. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.